Podglomerate original. Hey, it's Andrew here, and as you know, this isn't the only podcast I work on. One of the other shows is Green Eggs and Dan, and it's starting its fourth season. It's hosted by comedian, actor, writer, restaurateur Dan Adute, who you might recognize from Cobra Kai or Kevin James's The Crew, or maybe you know him from Green Eggs and Dan. In each episode, Dan quizzes a famous guest about a very personal topic, their fridge. This season, those guests include legendary chef Jacques Pepin, modern family star Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Food Lab author J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, and Emmy Award-winning actor Henry Winkler. Their conversations start with food, but that's not where it ends. Stay tuned to hear the first episode of Season 4, where Dan talks with Jacques Pepin about creating accessible recipes, his relationship with Julia Child, and working as the personal chef to three French heads of state. Subscribe, listen, and discover something new about what your food says about you on Green Eggs and Dan, wherever you listen to podcasts. Talking about chicken a la king, mango and garbanzo, tabbouleh, potatoes and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil, zucchini, ziti, granola, fruit bar. Look at all this beautiful food. Guys, welcome to Green Eggs and Dan, where I interview amazing people with amazing minds, but all I care about is what is in their fridge. I'm probably more excited about today's guest than any guest I've ever had on the podcast, and I, I've had some amazing guests, but uh, today's special, today's guest is a legendary chef, author, culinary educator, television personality, and an artist. He has authored over 30 cookbooks, including his new one that has just come out, Quick and Simple. He has 24 James Beard Awards, the Emmy Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2019, the Légion d'Honneur, France's highest order of merit in 2004, and countless more honors. I am so honored to say this. Please welcome my food idol, Jacques Pepin. You sure you're talking about me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely talking about you. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. You know, you've been uh, so influential in my life in becoming uh, someone who loves food so much and also in the lives of, I know, a lot of my listeners and a lot of my guests, especially when I have chefs on. You're you're their food idol. Thank you. That's what happens when you get old, you know, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we're going to get right into your fridge right now. You sent me a couple pictures of your fridge. Uh, you guys can see yeah. Jack's fridge on my Instagram at StandUpDan. Let's start. I'm actually, I love this fridge, Jack, because, you know, I feel like a lot of people would probably think that you would have a very pretentious fridge. And you don't. You have a very accessible fridge. Well, you know, if you notice on the top next to the beer, I have a jar of caviar there. Ah, I take I take uh, it all back then. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. And I always put it next to the beer. Yeah. Because when people when people tell you, do you have a beer? I say next to the caviar in the refrigerator. So that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, you have you have a couple of Corona extras next to a huge jar of caviar. You have a lot of a lot of heavy cream, which is very French of you. Uh, yes, some uh, yeah yeah. I use it. 
you know, that's what I'm too fat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. And then I love over here on the second row, it seems like you've got some pate here. Is that what, what we have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a little pate there, I guess. Uh, forget what, what I think it was... Uh, uh, Kelsey, that you spoke with, you took the shot yesterday in the refrigerator. So, uh, yeah, I have uh, some sour cream there, some shall- uh, some oh, some shive from the garden, you know, parmesan Shives. cheese, tough tomato, parsley, whatever. Yeah, I love it. By the way, my favorite yeah. thing that you ever say in all of your cooking videos is shives from the garden. That's like I want. Yeah, <laughs> I, I use a lot of it because it's it's free to start with, and you know, and fresh. I love it. Let's go to one of the other uh, fridge picks here. This is a little lower on the fridge. So this is the this is the yeah. cheese section here. What kind of cheeses are those? Well, I have a, um, a Roblochon there in the back, and a piece of uh, Swiss cheese in front, and on the right it's an American cheese from uh, Vermont, a very creamy. Quite nice cheese, actually. I feel like Vermont has been making some amazing cheeses lately. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah which is new. Which is new. I mean, the sad thing about American cheese versus cheese in Europe or in France is that we can't make non-pasteurized cheese, right? Yes. With but you know, it's crazy because uh, uh, you're not supposed to import unpasteurized cheese either but i go on the internet i order cheese in france it's unpasteurized it go right in okay so i don't i don't know how to do it but if any if any uh customs agents are listening jacques pepin is breaking the law (laughs) the raw milk cheese so you the bananas in the fridge why do you put your bananas in the fridge i leave mine out but tell me why yeah they, they, they they last longer because i buy a bunch of banana i don't use it all the time this one is a week old and it's still quite nice inside. Next to it, I have that little package. This is uh, this is actually chicken for the dog. Uh, Over that here? little package that you're <laughs> here, right? I love it. Gaston, my love, my dog Gaston. Gaston, what a great dog name. Gaston, come here. Gaston, yeah. Viens. Yeah. Does come, it... you want to bring Gaston for me? So yeah, I introduce him. Oh, this is. Uh, I have a friend of mine who raised chicken and dog, so I have. Great chicken, a great egg all the time. Oh, yeah, I can tell. Yeah. Okay, here is Gaston. Where's Gaston? Oh, hi, Gaston. Bonjour. Does he speak French or English? Yeah, he speaks French, Spanish, English. He speaks everything. Gaston? Gaston, Gaston, he's going to work at the UN soon, huh? With all those languages. Exactly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I have some rosé. I have some white wine. I have some, uh, some sesame oil. Yeah. Next to it, a little uh, bottle of uh, white truffle oil. Yeah. Uh, and next to it, uh, a fair amount of Chinese stuff that, that, you know, sauces, poison sauce and so forth I use. Yeah. A little bit for everything. Yep. So here's, here's let, me just, let me just go through why, what it is that's very impressive to me about you. So you have all of the chops to be, if you wanted to be the most precious, pretentious chef in the world. You know, you, you, right. you came up in France. You were the chef for three heads of state in France. And then you came to America, and I believe you rejected the Kennedys. They wanted you to be their chef, and you said no? Yeah, right. Well, I was at the pavilion at the time. But, you know, you have to look at it in the context of the time. At that time... When I worked for the president in France, uh, well, for De Gaulle, for example, I saw Madame De Gaulle once a week to do the menu, stuff like this. But I served like Eisenhower, 
Nehru, Tito. I mean, those were the head of state at the time. Not ever any time one would call you to get kudo in the dining room. That did not exist. You know, no one ever mentioned it. I had never been interviewed by a newspaper where television barely existed. That did not exist. If anyone come to the kitchen, it was because something was wrong. You were going to get yelled at. And at that time, any godmother would have wanted her child or her daughter to marry the, a lawyer, uh, you know, uh, an architect, certainly not a cook. Now we are genius. So I don't know what happened. But, uh, but certainly in the context of that time, when I was asked to go for the Kennedy in 1961, uh, I, uh, I had been in this country like six, seven months. And I had some friend in New York. Uh, I was doing different type of thing. And it is the type of stuff that I had done. And I said, well, I've done that. I want to do something else. I did not realize the potential and the publicity or whatever, because it did not really exist. On the other hand, I went to work for Howard Johnson. Well, that was something totally new. Mass production, marketing, chemistry of food, all of stuff that I didn't, American eating habit, all of that I didn't know. Yeah. When I left... Howard Johnson, 10 years later, 1970, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie between 45, 46th Street, yes. very high volume. Then I was a consultant for the Russian Tea Room in New York during the 80s. Then I set up the World Trade Center commissary for Joe Baum and so forth. I'm saying all of that to say that I would never have been able to do that as a French chef if I hadn't had the training of Howard Johnson. So Howard Johnson was you know, very important in my life. That's amazing. I mean, so yeah, I mean, this is what's interesting about you is that, again, you are, you've got the most chops to be the most highbrow chef if you want it to be, but you don't oh, yeah. do that. Oh. What you do is all your cookbooks are so accessible. You know, when I started cooking was in the early 2000s and I really fell in love with all these. That was when I think be being a chef became really cool and like suddenly uh -huh. chefs were right. being these rock stars and on TV shows right. and stuff. And so I got all these complicated cookbooks and I started, you know, making my own mayonnaise and doing all. And it was just like anytime I wanted to make, you know, a tiny thing, I, my whole kitchen would be my parents' kitchen would be ruined for the next week because I was trying to make uh, salad dressing. Yeah, but there, there is there is nothing wrong with that. You know, it's nice to know how to do that. I have to say that, for example, if my name was uh, Thomas Keller or Daniel Boulou, I would do a demonstration, a recipe to show you the extraordinary quality of what I do in my restaurant to try to incite you to come there and spend money. But rather, this is not what I do anymore. I don't have a restaurant. I want to help people cook at home. So it's that so I buy stuff. In the regular supermarket, sometimes I have the package of the supermarket so people can relate to that. So it's a different point of view. If I had that type of restaurant, I would do, and I've done, you know, I did the art of cooking in the 80s, that's very kind of more elaborated and so forth. But, you know, you change also as you get older, your metabolism change. And, uh, uh, you know, now if I have a tomato out of the garden, which is the right temperature with a bit of coarse salt and olive oil on top, I don't need any more embellishments around, you know. Yeah. So that's what happens when you get older, too, you know. <laughs> so I remember I was I was getting all these fancy cookbooks that you're talking about, and then your cookbook came out. And I remember I used to make fun of people who tried to do shortcuts and this and that. 
And then you came out with a cookbook called Fast Food My Way. Uh-huh. And I started to look through this cookbook and I was it changed the way that I thought about cooking because I was like, wait a second. If Jacques Pepin is telling me that it's okay to, you know, do things that are shortcuts in a way, not 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 be so precious about cooking. Coming from you, you know, I think that was what changed me because I was like, if it's okay for him, then it's okay for me. Right. You know? Well, I did two series on television called Fast Food My Way. See, I have 30 books, and it's because uh, I have done, uh, you know, I did a book for the Cleveland Clinic for cardiac patient, whatever, I mean, many years ago. So that was very, very focused toward one idea of food. You put your knowledge there. Then for 10 years uh, in the 80s, I had a, a, a column in the New York Times called The Purposeful Cook, which was to cook for six people with a minimal amount of money. Mm. So again, the focus was the economy in the kitchen. Fast food may well, the focus was more to help people getting stuff from the supermarket. And also the market had changed. Remember that in a professional kitchen, you have someone coming, the prep cook come in the morning, he bone out the fish, he bone out the chicken, he slices the mushroom, he chop the shallot, uh, all of that. So I get to the stove, someone order a, a piece of fish. Where the fish is right there, I have a bit of shallot, some uh, mushroom on top, dash of white one, bring it to a bowl, one, two minutes, take it out, finish it with butter or cream. And that's it. I have a dish in five, six minutes because I have the prep cook. So I wanted to show people how to use the supermarket other prep cook because now that's what it is. So you can buy skinless, boneless breast of chicken, pre-washed spinach, you know, pre-sliced mushroom. You have a non-stick pan. So that's what I did in the fast food my way. I, very often I had the package from the supermarket, which I opened there to show people that I could do three, four dish in like 30 minutes too. So again, that was focused toward a very specific area of, of food. On the other hand, what I did... Uh, the Art of Cooking, uh, I did 34,000 pictures. It took five years. I had two volumes. Well, I went to fish in my pound to be able to get frog uh, fr- uh, fresh. So I could tell you how to take the skin out of it too. I went fishing in Long Island to get a skate because you cannot buy the whole skate. You can only buy the wings. So I wanted to show you how to take the wing out of the skate. I bought a whole baby lamb and so forth. So it's totally different approach, you know, to cooking. Yeah. I love again, I love that you that you have the kind of bird's eye view enough to be able to say, okay, let me service these people, let me service those people, let me bring them together in a way. And the truth is when you teach people that they can use the supermarket as their prep kitchen, you end up cooking a lot more. Oh sure, it's, it's easier. And the more you cook, the better you get at it. So exactly. it's a it's a vicious circle, you know. But look, I, I do since the be- beginning of the pandemic. Claudine, my daughter, told me she does Facebook. I don't really do. And my son-in-law does uh, uh, Instagram and so forth. She said, could you do some very simple recipe for people stuck at home using your refrigerator, but you have in your freezer too, which I did. Now we have, we did 170 of those. So uh, we, uh, my son-in-law, we have the, the Jacques Pepin Foundation and we work with, uh, you know, community kitchen all over the country and people who have been, a bit damaged by life, you know, a drug addict, former drug addict, people who come out of jail, homeless people. You know, we work with a lot of people like that. So uh, a, a while ago, my son-in-law, uh, Rolly, told me, why don't you do a few dishes with that budget cooking? Because people who go to food pantry, they give them a bag and you have can of chicken, can of this, can of that. So I end up doing five 
six dozen recipe for him with canned asparagus, canned stuff that I really don't really use yeah. at home. But I mean, you know, it does help people to be able to do something with uh, with what you have, you know. So there is nothing wrong about anything. Absolutely, I love that. Very utilitarian. Um, yeah, you know, like you said, it was very. You were kind of a trailblazer in that no one was no one was really doing food TV at the time. No one was doing the no one was the rock star chef at the time. Chefs stayed in the kitchen right. and they, they they that's where they spent the rest of their yeah, lives, of right? Of course, of course. And yeah. so when you it's it's amazing to me that you're I've I've watched all of your all of your shows. I've watched all the the shows with Julia Child as as well. Right. And that show still somehow stands the test of time. And, you know, I needed to make um, a Bernays sauce and I was like, and I went on to YouTube and one of your recipes came up and it was just like so much fun to watch the way you were, you two were working together because you guys had such right. a funny okay. chemistry together. Yeah, because we argue all the time. Because <laughs> yeah, what people don't realize is that it took about two years, at least two years by the time we finished the show to come on the air. Because we had no book, we had no recipe, which is the reverse of what you do. When I do a series on television, I have at least the manuscript of the book so that the back kitchen or other people have an idea what we're going to do. There we had no recipe. We decided let's do stew tomorrow or let's do whatever. So, you know, that gives us a certain freedom. I mean, why do I have scallion in that dish? Because they happen to have on the table, I have a bunch of scallion, I throw it in. You know, that type of thing. But we did argue with Julia all, all the time. And of course, it wasn't that easy for the cameraman because they didn't know what we were going to do. Because as I say, we had no recipe. And uh, and the show, you know, like when I did Today's Gourmet, all those shows for years at KQED, it's a show of 30 minutes. You know, and for at least four or five series, I did on time, without extra time. So, you know, you have a guy coming with a sign... You have seven minutes, you have four minutes, you have three minutes, one minute, finish up, wrap up, and you have like three recipes. So it can be kind of a stressing. So when I started doing it with my daughter, I said, you know, my daughter is supposed to be the, the Vox Populi there to ask me questions that people would want to ask me. I cannot really do it on time. I said, okay, not too much because it's expensive, so fine. So we went five, ten minutes over, that's it. When we did it with Julia, she said, we'll cook when it's finished, we'll tell you. Some show were almost two hours, you know, half an hour show. I don't know what, what they did with what was cut out because we just drank wine and cooked and fine. So it was easy show. Too. That's the best part is that you guys are drinking while you're doing the show. I mean, no one imagine doing that now. No one could do that now. Well, I don't know. But Julia was, was very, very funny this way. She loved to do things for PBS, as I do. We didn't have to call to, to any sponsor. In fact, we couldn't even endorse the sponsor, too. But I remember one time, and we, we drank a lot of wine. We had Kendall Jackson, Jess Jackson, with the honor, was also a friend of mine. He called me, said, can we fly on? He was in, on the West Coast to come in to see one of the show. We want to take you out for dinner with Julia. So I say yes. So they come in. So the producer, of course, tell me, you know, Jess Jackson is coming. What are you going to serve wine? I said, I don't know, but we start with a bottle of wine, white wine. We go through the show. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so we do all of that. We finish. I think we did a stew. So at the end, I tell Julia, would you like, uh, what do you want, a Merlot with that? Maybe a bit of Cabernet too? She said, I want beer. <laughs> I said, what do you want? You want beer? We don't have beer. We have beer. She had beer underneath. 
who I say, you know, you don't have to cow to, to the to the you know to the sponsor, but you don't have to antagonize them. You know? so, but she, she went this way. That is so great. I love it. I mean, it just sounds like you guys had a real joie de vivre going on while you were uh, shooting that. Yeah, we had a good time. Yeah. So one of my favorite videos of yours, and it's a. I don't know if you expected this to go viral or to become as popular as it did, but your video of how to make a proper omelet. Yeah, I don't really know why this, but we use so much eggs. I love eggs, and uh, you know, and 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 if you look in the art of cooking, I did three omelets, a country style omelet with larger curd, which is the way my mother would do it. My mother wouldn't do it in a classic way. Then I do a flat omelet like a uh, uh, Western omelette, which we do in France, in the southwest of France. And then I did a classic French omelette with the curd much smaller, wrapped uh, faster. It's not better than the other one. It's just a way of doing it, which in a classic restaurant, when I work at uh, the Plaza Athene in Paris or Maxim, yes. And, and, and even when I worked in France in many restaurants, often when I was younger, uh, you come in, the chef uh, would tell you, just make an omelette, just to check you out. Yeah. So that was a kind of a threshold, you know, so. It was a, it was a litmus test, yeah. Yeah. And there was something about, so, but that video, when you're making the French omelette, I feel like, you know, it, it, there was something so interesting about it, because in most of your videos, you're very, you know, you're very easygoing, happy-go-lucky, but for that video, you were very much like, this is how you are going to make a French omelette, and don't mess it yeah. up. <laughs> it was so great because it was like we get to see Jacques being like the intense, you know, taskmaster. Uh, yeah, the chef in the kitchen, right? Okay. Yeah. But there is something magical about a French omelette that it's just got that silkiness that you can't get yes, anywhere else. Different different technique, yes, right. And you know, at the pla at the Plaza Athene in Paris, we did it one way. At the Pavilion in New York, I remember we stuffed it with lobster and glazed it with a sauce on top. Uh, and so forth. So there is a lot of variation. In fact, I'm doing a book now on on chicken and egg. I mean, I, actually, I'm doing a book. I wanted to do a book of my drawing of chicken, painting of chicken. I have over a hundred, but of course, they wanted recipe. I said I don't want to do more recipe. <laughs> but I finally came out with the idea that I don't know if you've read my book, uh, uh, The Apprentice, uh, the story of my life. To so it's the same idea. I, I I'm telling story of chicken, story of egg, story. You know that I'm going along with those uh, those pictures. You know, not a conventional recipe. You know, so you know, it's it's one of my first of all, your drawings are fantastic, and I love that that's coming out. Thank you. It's one of my one of my dreams is to have a poulet de Bresse. I've never had it. Oh, it's yeah. a chicken from a town in France called Bresse, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and they um, have the Bourg-en-Bresse. Yes, yes. Bourg-en-Bresse is the capital of a real area called La Bresse. Yes, it's in a, a department next to Lyon, and, and they, they have the color of the French flag. Yeah, the the, the bird know. has the color of the French flag. The feet are blue. The yeah. head is red, and then the you know body is white. But is there? Uh, tell me about that chicken. Am I missing out on something? Should I be dreaming about this chicken? Well, when I was a kid, that's all we used. That's what there. And the chicken, uh, the last time that I went there, still they are raised into field, uh, and they are in a little uh, hut, if you want, which are on roller. So uh, if there is like fifty chicken in that uh, particular little uh, little house, uh, you know, they come out in the morning, uh, go around, graze, eat the grass. Eat the... There is a, a special way you know to start with 
uh, you have the, the cow going there, the horses, the cow in the field, and they do the, the, what they have to do. The chicken are eating through that, the worm and all that too. Yeah. And eventually after the chicken, you have the lamb or the, the, the mutton who eat everything. But those chicken are there for a couple of weeks and they move that little house and they go in another area and another area. And then of course they supplement them with a lot of corn and grand corn. Uh, interestingly enough, in France, we don't eat corn except in Brest, where I am from. I was born in Bourg-en-Bresse there. We eat corn. And uh, around the farm, you see those corn hanging and so forth. Now they are not unripe, like the way we buy them at the market here, which are much sweeter. Those are corn. And when we were kids, we cooked them in the, in the fire. Mm. I remember. In fact, in France, if I tell someone, I am uh, from Brest. He told me, oh, you are a yellow belly. Well, it doesn't mean what it means in English. Ventre jaune, we say in France, because I, we eat a lot of corn, so we are called ventre jaune. <laughs> yellow belly. That's hilarious, ventre jaune. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that there was corn in France. I thought that was a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. No, there is a great deal of corn because they use it for, for feeding, for all kinds of other things. But for, for the market, for us, it was one of the only places where we had corn. Now there, there, there are some in the in the supermarket. Wow, I love that. When you go to restaurants, I know it's been a while because we're we're in a you know we're coming out of the pandemic. But what is your experience of going to a restaurant? Do you like it or do you not like it when you get recognized? Do they go crazy? Are they cool about it or what? Well, both. I mean, it's always being being nice. You know, if people give you a glass of wine for free. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so yes, no, of course. And and chefs are very very giving. You know, I mean, by nature. And uh, so it's nice. It's nice. Sometimes it's frustrating. I remember going to a, with pretty famous uh, lawyer and and doctor. Which uh, we get to the restaurant, they don't even look at them. They come to me up to go, and I say, "Look at that cook!" And they get crazy. <laughs> yes, so we get we get our recognition. I love and that. It's nice, of course. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so great. Guys, I pulled up the glowing New York Times review of Jacques' restaurant in New York, La Potagerie, and it is awesome. Written in 1971, here's how it starts. Working girls stuffed into hot pants, young lawyers juggling briefcases, and all manner of midtown budget lunchers with non-budgetary self-images are flocking to this bright, shrewdly contrived cafeteria. Soup is the name of the gimmick. Three kinds of soup, that is, plus trimmings, all for $2.50. Wow. Another item of note, Jacques' name isn't mentioned once in the review. Shows you how far chefs have come. All right, back to Jacques. Okay, Jacques, I'm going to get to the questions that I ask every guest on the show. Oh, okay. I'm very excited to hear your answers to these questions. By the way, just for the listeners at home who are not watching this, you, Jacques's background right now is a wall full of wonderful, beautiful copper oh, pans right. that are, <laughs> and it's just, it's exactly the background you would expect Jacques Pepin to have for. Yeah, that's my kitchen. I use those pots, you know. So oh, yeah, they're not. I use, I use. Copper less and less because it's too heavy for my arm. But yeah, I don't have any pot under in closets. They're all on the wall. It's easy to reach. And I always thought they were beautiful. So it's easier to catch, to grab them and use them. Yeah, yeah you know, my mom has a, a lot of Le Creuset. And uh, oh, yes, she, she says they're getting when they become too heavy for me, then I can have them. So every oh, cool. every okay. year I get a new one, the big ones that she's like, ah, it's too heavy. So 
I have a nice little museum of Le Creuset in my home. Oh, good. Jacques, what is your earliest food memory? I think my earliest food memory, when I was about six years old, uh, I think I mentioned that in, uh, in my book, is that uh, during the war, uh, my mother took me uh, to a farm for the summer uh, because we really didn't have much to eat. My father was in the resistance. He was joined my mother with a waitress. I had two brothers. So my brother went into a farm. I went into the other farm. And my mother took me on her bicycle at the time, you know, sit in front and uh, about 30, 40 kilometers from Lyon. And then she left, you know, I was a little kid, so I was kind of sad. And then the farmer's wife took me by the hand, said, let's go to, to see the cow. So we go, I'd never seen a cow that close to do. And she put my hand on the tits and make me draw the milk, you know, to show me how to do it. And this is the first time that I remember having a glass of milk for me and lukewarm just coming out of the the cow so that probably is my first uh food memory and maybe changed my life wow that is such a well-written food memory there's so much to that with the resistance and the war and everything but another world yes yeah now i can't see any reason why someone as nice as you would be on death row but if you committed some sort of crime and you're on death row and you have one last meal, what is Jacques Pepin's death row meal? Well, I'm going to have uh, probably some caviar and some hot dog and ham and egg and squab and uh, great cheese. But what's very important is that it's going to be very, 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 very long. Yes. <laughs> Maybe a month, a month and a half. <laughs> Exactly. And then they'll just forget that they had to execute you. <laughs> right. I love squab. I feel like squab is a very misunderstood protein in America. Oh, yeah. I love it, too. So, But it's not easy to get anyway. I mean, pretty expensive. Yeah, I like I, I always tell people I love little birds. You know, I go I, I, I hunt as well. And some of the, you know, like morning doves, like these little birds oh. have a livery flavor to them that I just love. Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. This is going to be exciting. What is the best high-end meal that Jacques Pepin has ever had? Well, the best high-end meal is probably one of those degustation menu that I've had in restaurants when I have about 20 different types of dish, one after the other, you have one tablespoon of that, one tablespoon, then move to taste to another one. And likewise with the wine, uh, you know, you have like uh, two tablespoons of this one that you have to analyze and so forth. Probably uh, the highest and meal that I ever had. And uh, by the way, the worst meal that I ever had was exactly the same one because when I do those things, I never remember the day after what I ate right. and all that. So, uh, uh, yes, that would be the best and the worst. <laughs> do you have a specific one that you remember being really uh, fantastic, like at a specific restaurant? Oh, several ones from from uh, Daniel Boulou to to uh, to Thomas Keller to uh, in France to uh, Bocuse in France. Although Bocuse was not uh, that small portion. So, mm. uh, yeah. Wow. So you got, I, I bet you had, a, when you went to Bocuse, he was probably there and it was probably an, an amazing meal, huh? Yeah. Well, he was in his room. He came to see us because it's not that long ago. So, you know, he died in the room he was born in, yeah. you know, in the room, the same room he was born in, in that restaurant and all that. Yeah. So Amazing. Do you have a best low-end meal, a favorite low-end meal? This could be a street taco, a falafel sandwich, uh, or, you know, anything like that. Well, uh, you know, uh, 
low low heat. Yes, uh, I love uh, tacos. I love uh, stuff like this. I, I I don't have any any taboo about anything. You know, people tell me where is your guilt food. I don't have any guilt when I eat food. If I like something, I eat it. Uh, you know, without. I love uh, uh, you know. I love uh, 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 little cookie. Even what do you call? I love Jello. People tell me you like Jello. I say yeah, I like Jello. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so you know, or, or little uh, biscuit stuff like that. I like everything. I'm basically a glutton. You know. Yeah, that's that's what I love about you. Now you you are like me. You enjoy the sauce. You like to drink. You like you like alcohol. Do you have yeah. oh, yes. do you have a favorite drunk food? If you if you have if you've had uh, a little too much, what's your favorite thing to eat? Well, to eat probably soup. Really? Soup and a piece of cheese. Oh yeah, when I when I eat a lot the day after I want soup, what I call uh, my wife called fridge soup. That is whatever I have in the refrigerator, <laughs> put it in a pot, put water on top of it, boil it, finish it with a handful of pasta or whatever. I love and it. Uh, Although in Lyon we have a, a drink we call the rince cochon, you know the the pigs the pigs cleaner if you want the rince cochon, which is a little bit of syrup of uh, of lemon and then some uh, dry white wine and salsa water. And then you have a hangover. That's what you drink. Ah, rince cochon. Rince cochon. I love that name. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the name of a restaurant. Le rince cochon. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited for this. This. So my next question, my answer for this is always Jacques Pepin. So I'm curious, who is your favorite celebrity chef or celebrity food personality? Well, I would have to say now probably Jose Andres. Mm. Jose Andres in one way, and maybe my daughter. Uh, for the love she put in the cook when she cooked for me. So, you know, it's different. I love that. Yeah, Jose Andres has been, you know, he was one of my favorite chefs before he became this this charitable oh, yeah. charitable guy. I mean, his restaurants me are too. so exciting and interesting. Yeah, a so generous guy. So, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. amazing. But chefs are really usually very generous. I mean, I remember uh, going to go any type of chef, you go in either feed the guys one day off a week, that day off you have 10 requests to do a dinner for cystic fibrosis, breast cancer, battered woman, yeah. which they do, you yeah. know, in addition, giving your time and bringing your food and so forth. Absolutely. What is your desert island food? So you're trapped on a desert island. There's one food uh, that you can have for the rest of your life and you're not going to get tired of it. Okay, eggs. Eggs, because I have so many new things of eggs. And of course, if I have eggs, I have to have the chicken yeah. <laughs> to lay the egg. So ah, that's going to be the egg. I see. You've, you've found a, you found a hole in my question here. You can... <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> that's, yeah, I can see. Eggs are very, very... They're so versatile. You can do so much with them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, from soup to anything. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is there a food... Oh, speaking of eggs, by the way, I tried to make a carbonara last week and I messed up so big. I mean, it became oh. like scrambled eggs on my pasta. Well, was it good? Yes, it was. Yeah, so, it was. So fine. I know, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> I think an Italian would have uh, scoffed at it, but I don't care. It tasted yeah. delicious. But even I tell a, a food critic, you know, should, should a blinder on their eye, you know, give them something and they say, is it good or not? That's the point, you know, whether... Uh, Try to analyze it, otherwise very often, or see what it looks like. To to a certain extent, it just amounts to this. You know, so yeah, yeah, it's funny. I think we've gotten so much into the aesthetics of food too. Like every time you go to a restaurant, right. everyone's just taking pictures of their food, yeah. and it yes. takes away from the enjoyment. I think not only that, but when you see that to 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 excite uh, 
the papilla of people, you got to go to that uh, to, to that degree of, uh, of decoration and all that, just to excite one, basically a third or two thirds of the world are dying of hunger. So you said, what are we doing? Yeah. You know, uh, it shouldn't be. So that's why uh, there is nothing wrong about presenting something nicely, but the exaggeration, I mean, you enjoy, uh, you know, Chinese food or Indian food. There is no decoration. It's right there on the plate yeah. and so forth. And, uh, and in France also, see, this is a, probably uh, a, a misconstruction of many people about French food because often Americans look at French food in the context of the Michelin Guide. And the Michelin Guide, of course, uh, has over 10,000 restaurants in it, but there is only about 600, I believe, who have star. There is like 20, 22, which has three star, about 70, 82 star, and about 100 or, 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 or 200 or 201 star. Uh, there is 138,000 restaurants in France. People in my family in France, many of them have never eaten in a three-star restaurant <laughs> right. in their life. Right. So, you know, I take group from Boston University. You know, I've been teaching at BU for 35 years. And we used to take them. Maybe we do one one-star at the most, or maybe went to otherwise we went to Bistro, uh, Fermoberge, and people would get crazy. Say, that French food, I thought it was Italian, just a plant roast. Duck with a grat. Yes, that's what people eat in France as well. But people often consider French food something more elaborated, more complex, more, you know, and so forth. No, and it's true. I'm with you 100%. And, and it seems like the new French chefs are definitely leaning into that kind of more simple, uh, less fussy stuff. And, you know, a lot of the, the cool new restaurants in Paris are you know, really simple and they're delightful. Yes, yeah, so there is nothing wrong by going to a three-star restaurant having an extraordinary meal, but you cannot eat like that every day. And certainly after the pandemic, I think people will go more, you know, in my family in France, there were 12 restaurants, 12 of them owned by women. You know, I was the first male to go into that business. My aunt, my cousin, uh, my mother, several restaurants. And even when I work with the president in France, coming back home, I remember going to my aunt in Nantua, getting into the kitchen with her to help her. She said, get out of here, use too much butter. No one was impressed at all by, by my credential. So the type of food that my mother would do, certainly when I was a kid, she didn't have a refrigerator. She had an ice box. She bought a block of ice to have the chicken and a couple of chicken, a couple of uh, piece of meat that she did for the day. She, we, my two brother and I follow her at the market. It was along the Sone River before going to school to help her carry the bag back because we didn't have a car. Then she started peeling her vegetable, do her lunch. And the day after it was all over again. It was everything was organic. Well, the word organic did not exist, right. but everything was organic. Anything was local and uh, everything was limited to three or four dish, but fresh every day. And I think that that type of restaurant will come back a lot after the pandemic, where the client that you have, your customer, or basically your friend, to, you know, people at my mother's restaurant will come in the kitchen, they were smelling, too, oh, I want some of that, or whatever. So, you know, it was simple, uh, you know, a few recipe, well done with fresh ingredients, and that's it, you know, that's what good food is for me. 100%, 100%. Yeah. Two more questions. Is there a food that you can't stand eating? Is there anything that you hate to eat? Yes, I hate grilled vegetables which are raw and burned, you know, especially like string beans. People put that on the grill 
they end up being burned. They are raw in your mouth, carrot too. No, I can't stand that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. I do think that oh, great stuff. blanching vegetables is a very uh, underrated thing that needs to be done. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I'm not blanching them 30 seconds and using them. I need my string beans to be cooked three, four, five minutes and then saute, you know, whatever. Well, that's good to know if I'm ever cooking string beans for you. <laughs> okay. Have you ever, by the way, Jack, have you ever, I'm of uh, Persian uh, descent. Have you ever experienced Persian food? Oh, sure. I have, I have a friend, Reza Yavari. Uh, next door, that's my doctor too. Yeah. Well, he's Persian, and uh, but actually, the doctor he did his medical uh, study in Paris, actually. But uh, he has a lot of his family in France and all that go there. So yes, I mean, I always love his rice. Yeah. Burn in the bottom. Oh yeah. I mean, a big, big crust in the bottom or whatever. Tadig, that's the tadig. <laughs> yeah. All right, ready. This is the last question. This is my favorite question, oh, yeah. which is, what is your restaurant pet peeve? Is there something that bothers you at restaurants? Yes, the, the waiter who come say my name is Charlie and uh, uh, this dish is the one I like the best on the menu. Say, I don't need to know your name and I don't need to know that you like that one. You know, so oh my God, Jack, that's mine also. I hate that when, oh, they, yeah, good. when they tell me, here's one, one, oh yes, I'm with you 100%. Like if, if you ask them, well, I'm thinking between this dish and that dish and they just say, yeah, get that one. It's like no. Yeah. Tell me no, no. what is it? What is yeah, it? What it is. Oh, yeah. See, we're kindred spirits. Well, Jack, you know, this, I started this podcast a couple of years ago, and uh, a lot of amazing things have come out of it. A book deal, a TV, good, TV. Good. Congratulations. Thank you. A TV show. But I will say, the highlight of starting this podcast is to be able to speak with you for an hour. Thank you oh, so uh, much. I don't, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and happy cooking. Thank you, Jack. This episode of Green Eggs and Dan was produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. The theme music is Beautiful Food by Idan, and the interstitial music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's really important to us, guys. Please do it. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.